Last time on Queer Meets Queer, we met Jim. Um, well, my name is Jim, um, and I go by he and him. And his father, John. My dad was about six foot tall. He was really slender. Um, he had a great off-color sense of humor. He was really creative. In Jim's childhood, his relationship with his father was strained by John's alcoholism and violent outbursts. And so we grew up in a house that didn't feel safe. You know, you, you learn to watch for things that let you know you needed to get out of the room, you know, so you wouldn't be, become the target. Um, he was at his best, you know, when he had about two or three drinks into him. He was really, could be really enjoyable. Um, and you just wouldn't know if the shift was going to happen because he would either shift into somebody sleeping on the sofa or somebody explosive. And so it wasn't that uncommon to, you know, have a dinner plate hit the wall. And that was just home. When Jim graduated high school, he discovered something of a found family in a cult. And I had this family unit that I'd never had that was accepting and valuing me and seeing worth in me. And Mm -hmm. that was just not something I'd ever experienced. He had two children. And so suddenly we had a positive pregnancy test and I was overjoyed. I mean, my one goal in life was to be a dad and to be a better dad than the dad I had. And he got married. So we decided that we wanted to become Roman Catholic. We were going to have our son baptized Roman Catholic, but found out that we had to be. But Jim could only pretend for so long and eventually came out to his wife, Karen. And so I told Karen, I said, I need to take a little time out from the marriage. That There's some stuff I need to figure out. And she says, does it have to do with that gay thing? And I said, <laughs> yes, it does. Her response was to out me to everyone. Um, so her circle, my family. This is where we pick up Jim's story. He's freshly out of the closet, and his relationship with his father is more distant than ever. But there's hope. Over the next few years, Jim undergoes an amazing transformation. He finds community, meets the love of his life, and the relationship with his father changes forever. So Jim separated from his wife, Karen, and set about starting a new life for himself as an out gay man and a father to his two kids. He was in his young 20s. Yeah, my uh, son was conceived on my 19th birthday, and my daughter was born 34 minutes after my 21st birthday. So uh, I spent my 21st birthday, instead of celebrating in a bar, um, I was a labor coach, so it was pant, pant, blow, pant, pant, blow. The first step was finding a new job. Uh, when the marriage ended, the company I was working for sold out, and... Um, and I had to find with kids, you've got to find employment. And the only job that seemed available was car salesman. <laughs> and um, because I had a sales background and I thought, okay, I can do that for a few months till I can find a real job. But I discovered really quickly that it was really an acting job. And I always wanted to be an actor, <laughs> except this paid and had benefits. And, um, <laughs> and uh, so I ended up being there like six years. Over the phone, Jim told me what it was like to enter the gay community after being outed by his wife, Karen. So it was not something that I I would have embraced had she not, because to me, that was the worst thing ever. 
you know, for to 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 accept the homosexuality. Um, but because she had outed me to everybody, I I uh, someone had invited me to go to a gay bar, and I said, oh, I just couldn't do that because to me, in my mind's eye, you know, I just had a a, a twisted view of what gay people were like. When Jim finally came around to going to his first gay bar, it changed his life. I hadn't been there but maybe half an hour and a guy asked me to dance. And out on that dance floor, it was the very first time that I ever felt free to be me. I was, And I was also amazed that it wasn't my view of what a gay bar would be. There were all these people that, you know, it was so mind expanding to go in and see how huge the gay population was and how varied it was. But yeah, it was liberating. It was liberating to come out in Portland at that time. Very characteristic of Portland. The bar Jim came out in wasn't strictly speaking a gay bar, but an integrated straight bar called Hobos, popular among the gay community. I spent 30 years at Hobos. I loved Hobos. You know, it wasn't gay Portland, but it was the place that gay Portland could bring relatives to show them that we weren't all deviant and Darcel might show up. Um, oh, I love that. Love that. Um, but yeah, I loved hobos. It was 1980 when Jim came out. The CDC wouldn't announce the discovery of a strange disease killing previously healthy young gay men in San Francisco until 1981. Even after this announcement, it would be years until a test became available, and close to a decade, before a substantial federal response to the epidemic took shape. There was not news of what was already moving in the community and looming on the horizon. There was just no knowledge of it. Um, My first awareness that something was going on was a roommate that I had, a wonderful human being, Jack Stowers. He was a bar manager at Hobo's. And... um, just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful person. And he had gotten sick and went in the hospital. And um, when we went up to see him, it was, it was seeing people walking in in spacesuits. And it was, it was clear that there was something going on and they weren't talking about it because it was clear there was something highly infectious. Um, but there had been no public, you know, hadn't heard anything in the press. That was my first inkling that something might be in the gay community. And then we started hearing stories about New York and, you know, but it felt so removed, you know, felt so removed. When the HIV test became available, Jim decided to get tested right away. I'm somebody that, you know, believes knowledge is power. And I wanted the peace of mind of knowing I was negative. The HIV test came out in 85 and I immediately you wanted to have it done. I was working at the car dealership and I chose to be out in the job. So I was working in a really homophobic environment with a lot of guys and explaining to them that they all should also get HIV tested, even though they might be having heterosexual sex, they were all whores. So, um, <laughs> you know, based on the stories they shared that everybody should get tested. And so my getting tested was public knowledge. The people at the dealership knew when I was doing it. They knew when I was going in to get the results and, um, you know, getting a positive test for HIV, it doesn't matter when it's a, 
It's a life-altering moment. And I went into shock, but I'm also a realist. And because my coworkers knew what was up and could see how he was reacting, I realized I had to immediately tell management mm. <laughs> um, because otherwise I was going to be out of a job. So I told the, the sales manager that, you know, what was up. And uh, within a week, uh, the general manager called me in and explained that they'd contacted the corporate attorneys and they had wanted they wanted to fire me, but found out that if they did, it would come back on them because it would be perceived. He was really shocked to find out he could fire me for being a fag because um, this was Beaverton um, back in the 80s. Mm. And um, so he was, he was shocked to find out he could have fired me for that, but because of the health knowledge, he couldn't. So what happened was... I got diagnosed. They send you to a doctor. The doctor ended up saying I wasn't just HIV positive, but I had what at that time they called age-related complex. It means they think your immune system's shot, but you don't have Kaposi's sarcoma or pneumocystis. So they give you this other diagnosis. And so the doctor, it went from being positive to within a couple of weeks, he was telling me I had less than two years to live because of cytomegalovirus. I really needed to plan on going blind within about six months. And so it was a lot to process. And I was a dad. So everything was built on thinking, how do I protect these kids? Mm -hmm. um, how do I tell my ex-wife? And I hadn't brought my family into it. I had shared it with one of my sisters um, and swore her to secrecy when she heard everything that was going on. Because what happened was the employer decided since they couldn't fire me, they were self-insured and they had already had an age loss in California. And so they decided to eliminate anything that was HIV related from their plan. So if your sickness might be related to your HIV, it wouldn't be covered. Mm -hmm. So it was a way to get rid of me. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm a Scorpio. I'm my father's son. <laughs> I've got a lot of anger and I had a timeline. <laughs> mm. So I was only going to be able to see for six months and I was only going to be able to live for two years. So I decided I'd fight. And so I was blessed. I found an attorney that was willing to take it on because there wasn't any corporate case law back then. Um, but what that led to was my sister said, you're dying. You have to tell the family. And uh, so called a family meeting with this dad that I'm kind of estranged from, but you were kind of getting along because of the kids and had to set them down and say, I've got really bad news for you. And so I laid it out, you know, and sometimes life's greatest treasures, they're all wrapped up in barbed wire because even though it was like the worst moment, it ended up at the age of 29, I discovered my dad loved me. Hmm. You know, it was in that moment that um, he got an I love you out, maybe because I was dying, but he was in my court. You know, he wanted to fight my employer. And it was the first time, you know, so it was a really healing, healing moment. And from that moment on, we never ended a conversation without both telling each other how much we loved each other. His father's love and support, Jim continued to fight his employer for equal access to health insurance. 
And the sad thing is I found out that to have standing, I had to stay employed with them. So it's not like the lawsuit could continue. I had to stay in the environment. And it went on for like a year and a half. And so it's hard to be working in an environment where they're wrapping up the toilet seat and you're treated like you have the plague. But that's what I had to do. Um, because I, I, I didn't think there would be another job. I didn't expect to survive much longer. And so um, you buckle up and you fight. And I did end up, um, I had to get out of there after about a year and a half. But it had already been used as a precedent setting case. It had set case law already. So I knew good had come from it. Jim's lawsuit against his employer set some of the very first case law in the United States. In fact, Jim's case would go on to set precedent in broader court rulings that helped establish the legal requirement that HIV patients be treated the same as other patients by health insurance companies. Between fighting the infection inside his body and the institutionalized homophobia in his workplace, Jim took care of his kids and somehow managed to spend time with his friends at Hobos. Hobos was the core of where I existed. It's where I made friends. It's, you know, um, um, all of my life events seemed to revolve around hobos. Uh, my best friend's name was Jose. We would get together a few times a week after work to go down there at like 10 o'clock. Jim's friend Charlie was a bartender at hobos and liked to play matchmaker. And one day, Charlie's tendency to meddle inadvertently led to Jim meeting the love of his life. Uh, Charlie was all excited because there had been a guy that was in that was asking about Jose. And right as Charlie was telling Jose and I the story, Bob walked in the front door and Charlie said, oh, there he is. And Jose says, don't say anything, uh, which, of course, Charlie didn't act on. So Bob just started joining um, with us at our table. And I really enjoyed his company and friendship. So we were we were friends. I hadn't targeted him for anything. Uh, but sometimes after having, you know, six cocktails, um, one would get more intoxicated and one would leave that really comfortable environment of hobos and one would head up to, you know, places like the Eagle or, you know. Um, anyway, I had been up there watching dancers and unbeknownst to me, Bob had come up behind me and um, had just thrown his arms around me, which is not something that had ever happened you know, because we were just friends. And it was the nicest, most connected thing I had ever felt. And so when he asked if I wanted to go home with them, you know, I said, sure. <laughs> and it just never stopped. Bob was a remarkable, just a remarkable person, a total class act. So yeah, met him at Hobos because the bartender was trying to hook him up with my best friend, uh, Jose. Jim and Bob had a lot in common. They were both previously married to women. They had both come out rather recently after separating from their wives. And they both had HIV. We both came into the relationship knowing that we were positive, knowing that we were dying. And uh, just trying to make the most. Jim told me from the very beginning that he wanted to tell a happy story. He knew the telling of it would make him cry. I knew that it would make me cry. Tears are perhaps an unavoidable and necessary part of Jim's story. 
but he was determined not to linger too long in dark places. Whenever we encountered an emotional moment like this, Jim would quickly, brightly, return to a happy memory. But yeah, Bob was just a wonderful class act, and he too had kids. He was a wonderful dad, and I'd, I'd never witnessed one up close and personal. And he was just, he was just embraced by my whole family. Even my dad loved him. He was just amazing. He was just such a class act. Bob brought health into Jim's family, a sense of togetherness and normalcy that Jim had never known as a child. Bob brought something into our family that we'd never had. You know, um, you know, dinners were always, uh, could be a potentially scary time growing up as a kid. We never had big, big, um, we never had people, we just didn't have people over. You just don't invite people into that kind of a household. And so we didn't have the normal traditions. And what Bob brought was traditional Thanksgiving, traditional Christmas, pulling all the family together. So Bob's uh, dad, uh, you know, and his wife and all the kids and grandkids. It was something I hadn't experienced. My family didn't experience that. And Bob was just such a class act. You know, even my dad couldn't dislike him. At that time, marriage wasn't an option, but I never could imagine my life without him. Bob was a bright light during a dark time. You know, it's, it's hard being a longtime survivor. I only have one person in my world that exists from then. You were diagnosed a decade before there was effective treatment. Correct. Which is incredible. For context, the life expectancy of someone with an untreated HIV infection is about two to three years. So everybody, and that's the reality, is all of us, we all had a death sentence. You know, and I'm, I don't want to play a violin because that's not who I'm about. I'm, that's not at all what I'm about. I'm, but, you know, I've been spit on, shouted at, religious groups, you know. AIDS was a hard thing. That first, in the, the first 10 years, like you say, There was no treatment, no workable treatment. It was a death sentence. Jim lost Jose to HIV. You know, I hospice, we hospice my best friend. Jim lost Bob to HIV. You know, I had to hospice my partner. And, but by then it was at the tail end. And so I built a lot of anger because what I found was when my partner became sick, all the friends disappeared. Hmm. Nobody called, you know. So I went through like a year and a half of really hard stuff with him. We really expected to pass within six months of each other. Um, But that's not how things have worked out for me. Against all odds, Jim survived. I went through a really long period after Bob had died where I was deeply depressed. And I was a really broken person when Bob died and all the friends weren't there. I became really angry. And I became really angry at the gay community because our whole circle was gay and they all abandoned us. And now I, I, I have hindsight at the time I didn't understand. It was personal. It was all personal. And it, um, but it caused me to really isolate. You know, that's why I moved out to Estacada. <laughs> you know, I, I, I ceased being a gay person. Um, I was just an angry person, angry and broken. It was during this period After Bob's death, after the passing of so many of Jim's friends during the height of the AIDS epidemic, after effective HIV treatments finally became available and saved Jim's life, 
that Jim's father took a turn for the worse. Jim's father was diagnosed with lung cancer and moved in with Jim's sisters. Both my sisters are nurses. They were close. They were tight. Um, they could tolerate each other um, when they weren't fighting. And so I went down to Pleasant Hill because they needed help with my dad. But Jim's father was somewhat reluctant to be in the care of his children. His dad had stroked when he was like six. And so his memories of his dad was an invalid that people had to take care of. Hmm. And, um, and so he was really adamant that he was never going to get there. You know, um, no one was ever going to clean his ass. And that was a promise that Jim's father kept. It was as my sister Karen and I were cleaning his ass that he passed. <laughs> he <laughs> lived up to the commitment he made to the very moment that it happened, and he left. So, and that's my dad. He, he was true to himself. Um, his kids cleaning his ass was something he couldn't accept, so he just passed. A death is like a birth. It's, it's a pivotal, you know, we equate bad things with death, but it's a transition to a new something. Um, um, I don't see it as a loss. And when you've dealt with as much death, dying, and loss as I have, um, it profoundly affects you forever. You are probably thinking, so that's it. That's the end of the story. But Jim's relationship with his father continued. Jim says that he can feel his father's presence from time to time, and he feels compelled to do things, things like feeding stray animals, because that's what his father would have done. Jim's interest in the metaphysical also continued. And one day he bought tickets to a public reading with a well-known psychic medium. So what ended up happening, my daughter and I went to one of these events with hundreds of people. I didn't expect a reading. But Jim received a reading. Out of hundreds of people, Jim was randomly selected to come on stage. Um, I got convinced that Bob was there. Um, things were shared that couldn't have been shared any other way. And all of a sudden, she said something about, she says, why did Bob give you his ring? Because he's showing me a gold ring. And I said, no, his ring went to his kids. She says, well, why is he showing me a gold ring on a chain? And I said, oh, so I reached under my shirt because I had worn my mom's gold necklace with my dad's gold wedding band. And it was under my shirt. And that was when Lisa had said, oh, your dad has just entered the building and I don't like him. <laughs> and, um, and then she went on to explain again, you don't have to believe in her. I do. Um, but she went on to say that um, the sense she got from him and the reason she didn't like him was he was hiding from her. Um, he was trying to conceal himself. And the sense she got was that he uh, was fearful that if she could clearly see him, that she would know things about him that he wasn't comfortable revealing. And so mm -hmm. he was trying to hide and she didn't like it when spirits did that. And, um, <laughs> and uh and so then she went into this thing. She says, well, the first thing your dad wants me to tell you is he is so sorry that he was never able to be the kind of father that you deserve to have. Mm. And, um, and how incredibly proud of you he is. Um, 
And um, then she started going into all these things that only my dad could relay. It was bizarre stuff out of the blue. And it's like, oh, my God. Did you get to talk with your father anymore? Or did you learn anything about your dad? Well, you know, the thing that she shared that to me was kind of eye-opening, because after my dad's passing, um, I saw a photograph from his wartime. And it was him standing in front of a guy, and they were both in their underwear, and the guy had his arms wrapped around him. And it looked like so many gay love pictures I've seen. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen lots. It This just... This was little Johnny, and he was loved. But in the reading, Lisa said, um, your dad is telling me to tell you that you guys have a lot more in common than you realize. And at that time when I saw it, because this was right after the passing, it's like the gears start to um, go, and it's like, oh, I wonder if my dad was bisexual. And maybe that's why there was so much anger directed at me because it really had to do with him um yeah like maybe he was jealous of you yeah, I, I don't know yeah you know, i don't know yeah. but i've used it it's been part of my healing sure you know my sister would say oh god there's no way dad was gay but you know i look at that picture and i think he was bisexual and it was a different time uh i grew up with a dad that i literally so wanted his love but ended up hating him and today I can honestly say I absolutely love him. Mm. Um, I have no, there's not an ounce of bad memories. Those are just, you know, those are just things we went through that provided life experiences that have led me to where I am today. And, um, and it taught me some really valuable life lessons. And part of what I found in being resilient is um, even the worst things have some treasure in them. And so you have to learn to hunt for that treasure really fast um, so you don't swim too deep. One of the gifts I've learned is how destructive anger is. Um, and I've also learned that if you have it, you can't always get rid of it. So it's what you do with it. And so um, if I need to get rid of some anger, all I need to do is to find a worthy opponent, which is normally something like Multnomah County or an insurance company and fight to affect change. Mm. Um, and I've been very effective. Mm. We really are getting close to the end now. I'm going to let Jim sum things up for us. Um, I came back from death and I'm a different person and it was a hard journey and there was lots of anger involved. And I can't say the anger is gone because when I get shorted out, it's still there, but I can't direct it at people. Mm-hmm. I find that focus it towards achieving something and, um, um, and it feels really good. Subscribe to this podcast to catch more queer relationship stories. We will have new episodes airing all spring and into the summer. In the meantime, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Queer Meets Queer. If you are wondering how to support this podcast and help us tell more queer relationship stories, please leave us a positive review. Reviews help people find us, and it's a totally free way to give us a boost. Thank you so much for listening. See you all next time.